0: Welcome to Arbel Ministries Podcast with Mark Whitehead. It's time for the people to continue their journey towards the promised land. In numbers 20, we found that their journey would be longer than expected. If you remember on the last podcast, we, we talked about how Moses had asked uh, the king of Edom to, to pass through their land, but he, he denied their request. So it would be a longer journey they imagined. But as we see in Numbers 21, we're going to find it's going to be even a more difficult journey than they expected as well. Let's start out by looking at just the first three verses of Numbers chapter 21. Here's what it says. When the Canaanite, the king of Arad, who lived in the Negev, heard that Israel was coming by way of Athirim, then he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. The Lord heard the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites. Then he utterly destroyed them and their cities. Thus the name of the place was called Hormah. The king of Arad hears about Israel's plan. And it says that he attacks the people and he takes some of them captive. Now, you need to remember something as we get going in this, this, this text. Remember that Israel in this text is not your father's Israel. Let me, let me explain that. See, this is 40 years after God told Israel that everyone in their generation has to die because of their lack of trust in him. So this Israel is comprised of the children, maybe in some cases, even the grandchildren of the people who had witnessed God's incredible miracles in Egypt. They had been in the wilderness, in the desert for years. And understand, in those times, there's not one instance at this point, it says that they had fought an enemy. So these children have no idea, have no experience how to fight an enemy. And suddenly this king of a rod comes against them. Verse 2, the people's vow to God may seem a little bit odd. Why would it be acceptable to God to destroy the property of a rod if he granted them victory over the people? Uh, doesn't that seem a little bit odd that, yeah, God, you give me this victory, I'm just going to destroy everything? Well, if one army destroyed the city of another army in this time period, what was typically, what typically happened to all the property and the possessions of the city? Well, the victor plundered the city. The winning side took whatever they wanted. So they became richer because they won the victory. You see that. In our text, it says Israel said they would utterly destroy the cities of Arad if God granted them victory. And, and what they're saying is we won't take any plunder. I, they're saying, I don't want to win this war for my benefit. I want to win this war for your benefit, God. So I'm not going to get richer if I win. We will destroy everything they have because this victory is for you and you alone. It says God listened to Israel. He delivered the people into the hands of Israel. And the text says that the name of the place was called Hormah. And this is not the first time we see this city in the text. Back in Numbers 13 and 14, the spies were sent into the promised land, if you remember. They came back and 10 of them reported that it would be impossible for them to take the land. The people are too big. The fortifications are too strong. And God was angry. He wanted to do away with Israel and just start fresh with Moses, if you remember that lesson. And Moses prayed on behalf of the people, and it worked. God decided to still use Israel. However, it was at this moment that God sentenced them to spend 40 years in the desert. They needed to learn to hear his voice. And the only two people that would make it into the promised land would be Joshua and Caleb. When Moses relayed God's verdict, the people, it says, mourned greatly. And as we discussed back in our our lesson in in Numbers 14, the next morning, do you remember what happened? The people got up and and they went in the opposite direction of what God told them to go. See, it told them to go south towards the Red Sea to begin their 40-year journey in the desert. And instead, they woke up and they went north towards the promised land. Moses wasn't with them. The Ark of the Covenant wasn't with them. God wasn't with them. And we reach Numbers chapter 14, verse 45. Listen to this. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and struck them and beat them down as far as Hormah. You got to get this picture. 40 years ago, The people had tried to take Horma in their own strength after rejecting God's plan for them. And as they begin their journey towards the promised land in Numbers 21, the first place their descendants have to conquer is the same place their parents failed to trust the Lord. You know, this time, Israel got it right. This is a huge, huge turning point in the narrative as we continue to walk through the book of Numbers together, you're going to see this is a turning point. Look with me at verses four and five. Then they set out to Mount Hor by way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water and we loathe this miserable food. They had to go around the land of Edom. Essentially, they had to turn away from the promised land. If you get that picture in your mind, they had to turn their back towards where they really wanted to go and travel in the opposite direction. How discouraging must that have been? And in their discouragement, they begin to speak against Moses and against God. And you might say, man, man, How stubborn are these people? Israel never learns from its mistakes. I want you to remember something. We're talking about the children and grandchildren of the original people who had grumbled against God and Moses. And here's what happens. These children model exactly what they saw in their parents. You know, it's nothing new to complain about the younger generation. It's nothing new to complain about kids these days, right? Let me give you some quotes from about 2,500 years ago. Here's one. The children now love luxury. They have bad manners, contempt for authority. They show disrespect for elders. They love chatter in place of exercise. Children are now tyrants, not the servants of their households. They no longer rise when elders enter the room. They contradict their parents, chatter before company. They gobble up dainties at the table. They cross their legs. They tyrannize their teachers. That was Socrates, 5th century BC. You listen to that quote and you think it could be written today. Let me give you another one. Young people are high-minded because they have not yet been humbled by life, nor have they experienced the force of circumstances. They think they know everything and are always quite sure about it. It's Aristotle, 4th century BC. Hmm. What if the problem has never been that the younger generation simply desires to rebel against authority only? What if the problem lies with a model? What if the problem is that the younger generations look at the older generations and model the image of self-centeredness they're witnessing? What if they watch adults in their lives and see how they argue over trivial things and watch how they don't respect one another and then live out that blueprint that's been shown to them? In our text, the next generation of Israelites speaks against God and Moses because that is what they had seen the older generation do. What will the next generation model because they've seen it in you? What are the things that would make you cringe if those that come after you do as well? See, what you do what you say and how you live is important. It will filter down to the generations to come. Ah. Oh. so may our speech and actions and motives match those of Jesus. Matters, matters. God knew that something had to be done about this younger generation. There had to be a drastic measure taken for them not to continue modeling what they had seen in their parents. See, they were were modeling even how they complained about their journey. Look at verse five. Look at verse five. The people spoke against God and Moses. Okay, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Have you ever heard that before? Yeah, that's exactly what their parents said. They're modeling the exact words. For there is no food and no water and we loathe this. Their parents had said these exact same words. So how would God respond? How would he get the people to understand that they needed to trust him and that they were missing the mark? Well, look at verse six with me. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. You know, as a parent, there are times when my kids really try my patience. And I'm sure of those listening to this podcast, some of you can relate. You know where I'm coming from. I think one of the most frustrating things as a parent is when you directly tell your children to do something and you know they understand what you told them to do and yet they don't do it. They disobey. As as I'm teaching on this podcast, even at this moment, my heart is being pricked and I'm being reminded of how often God must be disappointed at my disobedience to his direct instructions. It's not just something that happens to little kids disobeying their parents. We as believers in Jesus, many times we know our father's instructions. We know his preferred will. We know what he wants us to do. And yet we do the exact opposite. The patience of our Heavenly Father is so impressive. Now, let me tell you, if my kids kept complaining over and over again like the Israelites, I would have probably given up using them as my people. <laughs> but in God's patience, He continues to correct them because He wants to use them in His story. So take heart, believer. God hasn't changed. No matter where you are, he hasn't given up on you. He wants to use you in his story. And so he sends fiery serpents. And I'm not a snake guy, I try to stay as far away from them as possible. But these snakes were poisonous, extremely poisonous. One bite caused deadly heat as the inflammation and infection spread, causing death. And while this may sound like God was trying to do away with his people, it's not what's going on. God had a plan to, take, to make a remedy for these fiery serpents that would heal those bitten by the snakes if they would just trust him. See, he wanted his people to learn to turn to him. See if, that, if it worked. Let's look at verse seven. So the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. The people came to Moses asking Moses to intercede for them. See, they realized their sin. They, they were repentant. They confessed that they had missed the mark and they asked for these fiery serpents to be removed. But what's so impressive is they wanted Moses, the one they had been complaining about, to offer that intercession on their behalf. And we got to understand what these people are asking Moses to do. See, we talk about intercessory prayer and sometimes it's just words we throw around. These people were asking Moses to get personally involved by praying with all his heart on their behalf. That's exactly what Moses did. And God responded. And let me ask you, do you intercede on behalf of others? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, who right now are you currently interceding for? See, Moses pleaded with all his heart for these people. He became personally involved for the same people who were complaining against him. That is incredible leadership. See, I, I often call my prayers intercessory when they're anything but. I serve a God who wants everyone to know Him, e- even those that are speaking against me. Am I doing my part to plead on the behalf of others? And, and, then, and then a follow-up question to that. Maybe you have a name or a person in mind that you've been interceding for. The next question is this. Am I ready to be part of his solution because I'm personally involved? See, if if God is leading you to pray for somebody, many times those are the people he leads to speak truth to those people. You have to be willing to be the mouthpiece and to be the feet of Jesus if you're praying for someone. Don't simply pray for their salvation. Pray for God to give you the words to say when you're around them, to, for them to see light in your life when you're around them so that they will see their sinfulness and turn to Jesus. That is intercessory prayer where you're part of the solution and you're ready to be used by the Lord for that prayer to be answered. Let's look how God responds to the intercession of Moses on behalf of the people. Verses 8 and 9, here's what it says. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. So God says, Make this fiery serpent and put it on this standard, and when a person's bitten by a deadly fiery serpent, he can look at this bronze serpent and he can live. I'm not sure what you picture in your mind when you think about this story. There have been a couple of copper snakes found in excavations that date close to this time period. By the way, the Hebrew word there, uh, which we translate bronze, also means copper. But there have been a couple we found uh, in excavations from this time period. And both, one of them was five inches long and the other was eight inches long. In addition, we found miniature models that um, Egyptians would wear around their necks for the purpose of preventing snake bites. So I want you to get this picture. See, we don't always get our images in our mind from, from what we've found in excavations. We go to uh, drawings and artist renderings of things that have no basis on reality. So I want you to get this in your mind. God used an Egyptian Image. These these Egyptians would wear these things around their necks. God used an Egyptian image for his people. Now, why would he do that? I mean, that seems like a pagan thing to do. There are times that God uses culture, even if it's pagan, to point to himself. He's a redeeming God. And in this case, God uses something that was completely pagan, this completely pagan image of a snake, so that he we'd get the glory. And just before one of the most quoted verses in all of scripture, we find Jesus referencing this story. John chapter three, verses 14 and 15. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up so that whoever believes uh, will in him have eternal life. The bronze serpent Gave God's people a picture of what Jesus would ultimately do 1500 years later. Now, I've not been bitten by any fiery serpents, but, but I've been infected by something just as deadly. Sin. And my only hope is to look at Jesus. He is the only source of life that removes my death sentence. See, a bronze serpent was not something a person used to ward off an attack of a fiery serpent. The bronze serpent was to be looked at after a person was bitten. If that person looked at the bronze serpent by faith, he'd be healed. The same is true with us today. We've already been infected with sin. If we look to Jesus by faith, we will be healed. Isaiah 45, verse 22 says this, Look to me and be saved. All you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. The text in Isaiah 45 is powerful. Other translations, by the way, if you get out your Bible, may say turn to me. But the Hebrew word means to turn and to look at. Charles Spurgeon gave his life to Christ after hearing a sermon on Isaiah 45, and realizing how it applied to our text in Numbers 21. It's powerful when you understand. Even when we're infected with a death sentence, all we have to do is turn and look at Jesus and put our faith in him. And he'll save us. Do you know what happened to the bronze serpent in this story, by the way? The same bronze serpent that that Moses made. Do you know what happened to that, that serpent later in scripture? About 750 years later, we read a story from the time of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was one of the few righteous kings that we read about in the Bible. Now, listen to what it says. We find this in First Kings 18, verses 3 and 4. Here's what it says. Hezekiah did right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places. He broke down the sacred pillars. He cut down the Asherah. He also broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the sons of Israel burned incense to it, and it was called the it was called Nehushtan. Now, the bronze serpent became something the people idolized. It says they burned incense to it, and they began to worship the image rather than the Lord. You know, I, I, I think that God often removes things that he has used in the past so that people will not worship those things. Just think about the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments because, listen, it's stone. Stone can withstand the test of time. Why don't we have them today? I think God removes things like that so that we're not worshiping those things. The Ark of the Covenant, the temple. There are so many other things that we read about in the Bible that if we had them today, you know what? we would be worshiping those objects rather than the creator of those objects. And this is what happened with the Nehushtan, the bronze serpent. God had Hezekiah destroy it so the people would not worship the object, and instead they would worship him. The rest of the chapter, we see Israel's journey through Moab, By the way, there's something different about this journey. We see that they set out and camped. That that specific phrase, we see it four times in verses 10 through 13. It's the same phrase used way back in Numbers 9 when Israel was following the Lord and he led them with a cloud by day and he led them by a pillar of fire at night. They set out and camped, set out and camped, set out and camped. Remember, the first 10 chapters of the book of Numbers were great. Israel was obeying the Lord. It was going so well. And we're finally back to that. We see this turning point in Numbers. Their heart is repentant. And God sent these fiery serpents. And this is a big step in the right direction as we see their response and how they turned to the Lord. And just to end the chapter, Israel has two victories, and the first is over, and we'll get into this more in our next podcast, but the first is over to um, Sihon, who's king of the Amorites. Uh, Sihon wouldn't allow Israel to pass through their land, and, and it was just like the king of Edom that we've already talked about in our podcast. But this time, Sihon actually attacked Israel. He wasn't just saying, no, you can't pass through my land. He gets an army and attacks Israel. There's an interesting tidbit to the story when it's recounted in Deuteronomy 2, by the way, if you want to look it up. The text says in Deuteronomy 2 that God hardened the heart of Sihon. It's the same phrase that's used for what happened with Pharaoh before the Exodus. And we're not going to get into that in this podcast, but that's an interesting tidbit to look into and to study. And then as the, the very, very end of this chapter, Israel gets to the land of Bashan, the king of Bashan, Og, attacks Israel. But again, victor- uh, Israel's is victorious. But just understand they're getting closer and closer to the promised land. So let me ask you as we finish this podcast, what is God challenging you with? Maybe you're challenged to be a better model for those coming after you. Make, make no mistake, others are watching you. You are discipling others whether you are doing it intentionally or not. Point others to Jesus instead of away from Him. Maybe you haven't felt that God could use you or or would even want to use you because of mistakes you've made. Take heart. Our Bible is filled with people who have messed up big time, yet God still wanted to use them just like He still wants to use you. Maybe you've been challenged to, to be like Moses and intercede on behalf of others. Realize how Moses had to humble himself to intercede on behalf of those who were accusing him. See, there's no room for pride if we're going to be useful for his kingdom. So who are you interceding for today? And are you willing to be part of the answer to that prayer? Last, maybe you've realized there are things you've been worshiping. It might, might even be good things that God has used in your past See, we can worship the Bible rather than the author of the Bible. We can worship our church rather than our shepherd. We can worship our pastor rather than the pastor. It's time to worship God, not things he's created. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I really look forward to our next time together. And as always, Reach out to me if you have any questions, any feedback. If God is doing anything in you, I would love to hear about it. ArbellMinistries at gmail.com is my email. You can reach me on Twitter at Ministry. I look forward to our time together in the next podcast.